Well, good evening. It's lovely to see you here tonight. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open at John 14 as we continue our series in John's Gospel. As we approach John's John's Gospel tonight, we're actually at a turning point in that Gospel. It, It is the night before Jesus is crucified. It's the Last Supper. Jesus has actually hidden himself now from the public and he's only talking to his chosen, to the, to the believers, the, the inner sanctum, the 12, if you like. And quite remarkably, we're, we're actually invited in to the upper room. We're kind of with John, as it were, on the inside, and we get to hear everything that Jesus has to say. And what happens next in the upper room is actually quite unexpected for Jesus' disciples, and I think for us as well. You see, instead of being mere observers to some kind of messianic drama, it turns out that Jesus' followers are actually players. We've got something to do. God, yes, is doing something for his disciples, but he's also doing something in them and he's doing something through them. And that's really what we're going to see tonight, just in this very short passage, some of which we already read last week. So um, keep your Bible open because that's what we'll be referring to. We're in the upper room. Jesus, hours before he goes to the cross, Peter, remember, and Thomas have asked their questions. Then Philip pipes up and he says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus replies, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And as we saw, as we looked at these verses last week with John, Jesus' reply confirms here is God in the flesh. To look at Jesus is to see the God of grace. Now, before we move into the main part of this passage, what I think we need to do is actually slow down a little and consider Philip's question a little more carefully. He asks to see the Father. And it kind of reminds us of Moses. Moses up on top of Mount Sinai in Exodus 33. Remember, God has already delivered the people of Israel under Moses' leadership through all of the plagues, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the desert. Then that great day with uh, lightning and thunder and cloud up on top of Mount Sinai, Moses has climbed up the fearful mountain, met with God, received the Ten Commandments on uh, stone, gone down the hill and found, well, the people have started worshipping a golden calf, which Aaron has sort of fabricated for them. There is a great confrontation. The tables of stone are smashed. God's wrath breaks out. And then Moses has to go back up the mountain again. And it's this encounter that we read about in Exodus 33. What will God do second time around up the mountain? Will he destroy all of his people? Quite remarkably, back up at the top of the mountain, God hidden, obviously in dark cloud in some way, Moses begs and pleads with God, please stay with your people. As we go forward, be with us. And he wins that kind of concession with God. And Moses dares to say, then, now, show me your glory. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. 
and I will proclaim your name, the Lord, in your presence. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So it sort of seems like, has Moses just gone one step too far with God? He says, show me your glory. It's bold, at the very least. And, and I was almost expecting, you know, smiting and vengeance to break out right then and there for this incredible request. But God offers a gracious alternative instead. A sneaky glimpse, if you like, of his back as he's already passed by. No one may see God and live, but for Moses he will make an exception. He's given a privilege. So Moses learns, and I think we learn with him, that God is holy. God is not in the practice of making a spectacle of himself. No human being is worthy to gaze upon him and to see his face. We may apprehend some of God's majesty, but we'll never comprehend it. We'll only see what he reveals to us. God's person is not opened up for our inspection so that we can kind of pull him apart under a microscope and see what he's like. We remember he's our creator. We're his creatures, not the other way around. So that request of Philip's in the upper room is... Courageous, bold, <laughs> but it's the second part of his question that I think we've overlooked. Show us the Father, says Philip, and that will be sufficient for us. Seeing something, that, that, that'll, that'll satisfy our yearning. We'll be content. Once we see the Father, we'll have everything that we need. And I wonder if today, if we could kind of peel back the curtain and peek into heaven and see God, would that be sufficient for us here in Roseville? Would, would that vision of glory actually so transform us that for the rest of our days we would live fully for God because we've seen him? Ponder that for a moment. Would a vision of God satisfy your every longing for him? Would it be enough? Or would you want more? Jesus seems to suggest that we would be missing out on plenty if being shown the Father really was enough for us. Have a look at verses 10 and 11 again. He says to Philip, How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Rather than settling for a vision of the Father, Jesus says to Philip, the Father is in me right here. He lives in me and I live in him. You see, more than showing the Father, Jesus wants his disciples knowing the Father. The Father's not a spectacle to be gazed upon, like a show that you might applaud. Jesus is inviting his disciples into a relationship where we personally know God as Father. And that same invitation is open before us here today. 
Rather than looking at God from a distance, perhaps in some vision, Jesus actually wants us to know him, for there to be a relationship with him. Is that what you have? Is it what you want? See that phrase, living in me. Have a look at verse 10. Jesus talks about the Father living in him. Literally, Jesus is saying that the Father makes his home with him. He dwells with, he abides with Jesus. It's that same idea of, he's at home, in me. What do you think that actually means? For the Father to live in Jesus. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus is clearly connected to God in some way or other. Something's going on, but what exactly is it? Can I ask you to just park on the side, just for a little while, all of the things that you think you already know about how Jesus relates to his Father. Let's park them on the side for a minute and let's just quickly review what we've got in front of us in John's Gospel. Already Jesus has told his disciples that he has been sent from God. He is the sent one with the implication that because he's been sent by God, he actually carries all of God's authority. All of the signs and all of the works and all of his teaching affirm that Jesus is sent by God to do his agenda, to do his work. But now Jesus extends that idea from agency, from being sent, to indwelling. God is in Jesus and with Jesus. And actually, Jesus is in God and with God. They mutually live in one another. They are not the same, they're distinct persons, and yet they so dwell in each other. They are both divine in nature. And it's as though Jesus is saying, look, here is God himself in your midst. Remember what we've heard already from John's Gospel, okay? the very beginning of the letter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. See how that's set up already? The very first verse of the letter, quite confronting of, the, uh, of, the, of this gospel. And then a little later on in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Not once in the Bible does the word Trinity ever appear. Instead, Jesus just tells it as it is. This is how things are between my Father and myself. He doesn't offer us any technical analysis. It's just, this is what it is. And so we realise that God, as he is in himself, is fundamentally relational. Father and Son, Son and Father and present in that upper room. Staggering, isn't it? God is present with his group of people in an upper room. It's, it's amazing. For you and I today, I reckon that's really great. Our faith does not rest on a vision of God, something that you saw or something that somebody else once saw. Much better than that, we actually have an historically verifiable person who entered into history as one of us, for us, Jesus is objectively real and tangible. And he is actually available for scrutiny, if you like. Here is our God in human form. You can check him out. Do you know, 
that gives us, I think, incredible comfort and great confidence in, in, in a world which is like, you know, it's like an open market of ideas and, and beliefs and religions and so forth. We can confidently invite anyone, investigate Jesus. Um, he's credible. There is great truth, there's veracity here. You can compare Jesus with anybody else who wants to claim to be God because he's real. It's a great thing. We can happily talk with all manner of people, with philosophers and atheists, knowing the true and living God offers himself for investigation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might have found yourself on time at the dinner party. I always find it's dinner parties. I don't know why it isn't in you know, other places. But dinner parties, you know there's always that person at the other end of the table who's spruiking about all the things they know about religion. And you quietly sit there and you think, hmm. And then you say, have you ever investigated Jesus Christ? Would you like to read the primary documents with me? Interesting responses that sometimes come around when you try that at the dinner party. Try it, it's good fun. <laughs> so Jesus has been asking his disciples to move from passively observing, just let, let's see the Father, to actually knowing the Father, to engage with God. And that key movement from showing to knowing is actually introduced in verse 10 and then made explicit in verse 11. Okay? It all hinges on that word, believe. Okay, verse 10, Philip, don't you believe this about me? And then verse 11, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father, in the Father's name. Commit yourself to this truth. Decide for yourself. Apply your will to this. Much more than kind of watching and enjoying the show, Jesus is commanding us, believe. Activate your faith in this way. Not just agreeing that something's true, but acting on the basis that it's true. Now, I'm one of those people who's not great with heights. I don't know if there's anyone else. You, you get near the edge of the cliff, and even though there's a fence there, it's kind of scary. You feel that like magnetism. I'm going to pull you over the cliff. I hate that. So um, if that's you, you know where I'm coming from. I am not great with abseiling. Um, it's not a thing that has always appealed to me. It's challenging. When Kate and I were first uh, dating, we were not married at all, um, I think she was maybe testing me out, but she, she took me bushwalking with two of her friends who were very experienced with ropes and harnesses and uh, you know, freezing water and dark caves. And uh, we go off to a place called Clostral Canyon in the Blue Mountains. Uh, happily enough, but eventually in this, book work, book, uh, in this bushwalk, we come to the point where it's like, we're going to abseil down that waterfall and then at the bottom of that one there's another one and then another one and then you're a big dark hole all by yourself. And uh, Kate's friend, Grant, says to me, you've been abseiling before, haven't you, Stu? No. Uh, but I've seen it on TV. <laughs> hmm. So imagine, okay, my heart is now racing, and by the time I'm, I'm sort of harnessed up in that thing, and then there's a rope around me, and it's going around the tree, which looks pretty good, uh, and then there's this yawning dark chasm down below there. That's the moment. That's the moment when you decide, am I really going to commit to all of this? Will I really commit to the, to the harness and the rope and the tree and this guy named Grant? I can say I've seen it on TV, but will I really 
do this. The moment came and I decided that I would believe in practice. And I did it. Yay me! It was exhilarating. And obviously I'm here to tell you the story. It all went very, very well. But my point is this. Believing that Jesus is God in the flesh, God inviting us in relationship with him, can never just be a show. You've actually got to decide to believe. Commit your way to him. Will you commit yourself to the reality that the God of the universe is one with the man Jesus Christ in that upper room? More than just your mind, can I ask you what your soul is saying? Would you like to be in relationship with the God of the universe who presents himself to us in the the Lord Jesus? Would you like that? This is a very significant moment in John's Gospel. It's a turning point. Up to now, Jesus has been unveiling the Father through his miraculous signs, through his teaching, through his way of being with, with all these people. And all of this, Jesus' followers have been observers, haven't they? They've been able to ask their questions and hear what Jesus has to say in response and then they can watch what happens next. But now in verses 12 to 14, everything changes. Let's read those verses again. Verse 12, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Can you see how the ground has just shifted? We began with show us the Father and then Jesus wants us to know the Father and so we need to believe in the Father, believe the Father is in Jesus and now we've ended up with do the works that I have been doing. The possibility that Jesus' followers can simply be passive is no longer there. Believing in Jesus is going to be intensely practical. There's a lot going on, especially this idea that we might do the things that Jesus has been doing. Jesus has been amazing the crowds and he's he's demonstrated a power that everybody agrees, sceptics and believers alike, everyone agrees he's got to be from God. He's healed the sick. He's given sight to the blind. He's fed thousands with not very much bread. And just last week, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Is that what we're supposed to do when we believe? And what about doing even greater works than these, as it says in verse 12? What does that mean? The key word here is actually works. All of the things that Jesus has been doing are most accurately called signs. Okay, instead of party tricks to amaze the crowd, they are signposts to the Father. Their purpose has been to unveil the Father, to reveal Him to everybody so that people will know Him. The greater works are not greater miracles, that would be impossible, but they are greater testimony to the Father. Remember, that's how the whole conversation starts, right? Show us the Father. And so these greater works 
are works which reveal the Father to the wider world. Instead of being more important than Jesus' works or clearer than Jesus' works, Jesus' followers' works are going to be greater in the sense that they are more widespread, that they're carried out by many, many more people and they'll have collectively a greater response through the centuries, okay? The works of Jesus' followers will be greater in number and greater in distribution. That's how the whole world will come to know God. Jesus is leaving, he said. He said it already. He's leaving, he's going to the Father, but his works are to continue through his followers. So Jesus, and believing in Jesus, now takes a very practical edge, doesn't it? Actually, we reveal the Father through what we do and what we say in our ordinary everyday lives. We are not observers. We are not kind of watching some show. We're part of it. I once went on a tour of the Universal Studios in Hollywood. Anyone done that? It's kind of a standard, yeah, quite a few. It's a standard thing you do when you go to California, I guess. I was always sort of fascinated by the art of movie making. You know, especially, I, I think, and this shows my age, before the days of computer-generated images, okay? So, you know, you go and see them, how they made Jaws, the movie, and there was a giant rubber robot shark with big, you know, and that would come leaping out of the water. That's like movie making, when they can turn a rubber robot into something that looks realistic on film. Uh, And so we see the the, the giant rubber shark, and then it's time now to move on to the set of uh, the original Back to the Future movie. You know, know, Back to the Future with, you know, the DeLorean and 88 miles an hour and you go into the future, right? And we were told that we would see how they made the famous clock tower scene where Doc gets uh, zapped by lightning. Uh, You remember the scene? And uh, here's Doc, he's up on there, and he's he's got two kind of big cables and he's going to join them together at the same time as lightning strikes. It sounds pretty straightforward. And I've often wondered, how do you make that without computer-generated stuff, right? And um, we're going into this auditorium to see the making of it and um, a guy just taps me on the shoulder as we're going in and he says, "Um, could you give me a hand? Okay, sure. I don't know, Kate's going off that way, but I go off this way. I step into the next room where they start putting makeup on me and putting a costume on me and a funny wig, and here I am. Oh, no, that's the other guy. That's me. I'm caught up in the show. I thought I was going to watch something. All of a sudden, I'm in it. Jesus says that his followers, the people who really believe in him, don't watch the action. We are the action, God's action. We believe and so we reveal the Father through what we do and what we say. And to be honest, that sounds a little bit daunting, don't you think? How can we possibly show God to our work colleagues, to our neighbours, to the people at the club, to the guy down the road, let alone the 150,000 people who live within 10 minutes' drive of this building? Who is worthy, who is able to show God to these people? Well, the answer is in verses 13 and 14. The power to do it is not ours, but it is God's. We have access to it and we ask him for it. This promise of answered prayer might be something that you've seen before and thought, you know, that's kind of troubling because 
I've prayed a lot and I never got what I wanted. Didn't turn out the way I imagined it would. And yet this promise seems so clear. Notice that the promise, clear as it is, has a very clear purpose. That the Father will be glorified in the Son. We ask the Father as though we were Jesus in his name. We can ask him for anything at all and Jesus will do it so that his Father is glorified. So there are no limiting clauses here, no ifs and no buts. There are only purpose clauses for God's glory, for his greater honour and his majesty in all the eyes of creation. And that gives us incredible confidence and great direction in our prayers. Oh Lord, for your greater glory, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? It doesn't sound quite right because it probably isn't. There's nothing wrong with a new car, but God's greater glory is rarely served by my comfort or by my pride. On the other hand, God is honoured by our godly living, by our humble obedience, by our dependency upon him. God delights to answer prayers that will show his greatness to a watching world so that he will be revealed. These are incredible promises that we have in Scripture and I want to actually encourage you to explore them in your prayers. Will you pray and see what God will do for his greater glory as you pray? We talked a little earlier about how Jesus wants us to actually know the Father in relationship with him, really experience him and engage with him. Well, prayer in Jesus' name is where that starts. Prayer is the way that we move from observer to participant. So can I encourage you to pray for an opportunity to reveal God this week? Pray for the people who you'll be talking to or who you'll be working with. Pray for the courage that we all need to speak. And when we do, when we actually say, Lord, I want to live in a way, I want to act in a way and speak in a way that will show you somehow, to my colleague, to my friend, whoever it be, when we do that, you'll find something quite surprising. You'll find that we've actually come to know the Father in a new and a richer way that is far more enduring than a vision of all of God's glory that is here and then gone. I'm going to pray for us now that that's what's going to happen this week and let's look forward to seeing what happens. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. In all your grand majesty, you have poured yourself into the human being of Christ and shown yourself to us Offering that we might know you. Please will you enrich our love for you and our knowledge of you. And grant, Lord, that in our life, day by day, week by week, may we reveal you, may we show what you're like to our colleagues, our friends and our families, neighbours, people we meet. Please bring glory to your name, even through our ordinary everyday living. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.